Future-focused and emotionally charged Future You, which is RMIT Gallery's latest exhibition, responds to the complex possibilities of the rapid acceleration and convergence of technologies and its impact on what it means to be human. So there's a lot to unpack there, and to do that, I have the co-curator Evelyn Cetus, Dr. Evelyn Cetus, I should say, with me. Hi, Evelyn. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's exciting to speak to you about this exhibition, Aidan. Thanks for speaking to me. Oh, look, it's always a pleasure. And tell you what, with this particular exhibition, I've been looking forward to it because there's a fair bit to do with artificial intelligence, and it's almost like science and engineering crossing with art. And science fiction as well, science engineering and science fiction and art. What can audiences expect? I hope a journey, a journey into possibilities. So, and excitement and I think perhaps the unexpected because this is an exhibition about the future which has um, information, artefacts, research and artworks that perhaps you wouldn't expect for instance, petri dishes that smell of rotting fruit and other things, um, a death shroud from Mars and a pot plant, a four-metre-high hanging sculpture of intricately carved time symbols in paper. It's not all just screen-based work and that's not something you necessarily see in other exhibitions about the future. Well, Jonathan Duckworth is an associate professor in digital design in the School of Design at RMIT, and his work has yielded significant innovations within the arts and health technology sector. He's also been recognised for design excellence as a past recipient of the Victorian Premier's Design Award and a Good Design Award in Digital Design. Evelyn, you have co-created this this exhibition with Jonathan, and we will have a chat with him in a minute, but... First, I want to, um, to to ask you what it is about Jonathan's work specifically in this exhibition that, that people can expect to see. One of the really interesting things about this work is that hopefully people will be able to play with it. And when I say hopefully, as long as people can come into the exhibition um, with the restrictions we have at the moment. But um, what this is really interesting is that... Um, his work makes use of um, oral as well as physical. So when you touch the um, interactive uh, display table and start moving these critters, these little icons around, it corresponds with screens around you and sounds. And so they actually start talking to each other and interacting with each other. And the sound starts growing and growing and sort of fills the gallery space. It's quite interesting. And I just um, loved working with, uh, with Jonathan on this show for the different but similar perspective that he brings. And I say, I'm the science fiction and he's the science. And um, I think we work really well together. Um, and we speak the same language, although from coming from different perspectives. So, Evelyn, tell me a little bit more about Jonathan's work and why it's in the exhibition. Okay, so this is a work um, that uh, Jonathan has developed with uh, James Hullock. So it's the Duckworth-Hullock duo. And Disruptive Critters provides this humorous exploration a future creativity and digital disruption. The work features the vocalised performative possibilities of computer-generated critters and each have their own human-like emotions 
and they make these abstract utterances. Why don't we listen to one? Wow, that was that was a little bit of sonic mischief. So, Jonathan, <laughs> talk to us about disruptive critters. Yeah, thank, thanks, Evelyn. Yeah, so disruptive critters, uh, I developed. Uh, we started developing it in twenty sixteen uh, with uh, composer James Halleck. And when we started the project uh, in creating the artwork, we wanted to create an artwork for uh, a live um, sound art performance that we were doing for Melbourne uh, Music Week. Uh, And we started off thinking about how artificial intelligence might be used for a live sound art performance. So how do we create an instrument that's sort of half controlled by us and half controlled by a sort of autonomous uh, artificial intelligent um, uh, device. So we came up with Disruptive Critters as a sort of a, a humorous exploration of how, um, how you might perform in collaboration with an AI, but in some ways that the, the critters that you use to play uh, become quite disruptive and they disrupt the, the performance in numerous, in numerous ways. What I find really fascinating, Jonathan, is that we're at this point, aren't we, where artificial intelligence is, is just on that cusp of self-awareness and this work of yours, um, it's, it's humorous, but, you know, it also just makes us, you know, also wonder about Perhaps is there life beyond the digital? I mean, what happens if these these you know critters actually you know can control their own destiny? Yeah, well, that's. Uh, I mean, when we developed critters, we I mean we had an idea around what artificial intelligence might be, uh, but in fact we didn't actually incorporate any artificial intelligence into the instrument. Um, so it's really for us is more like a sort of a digital sketch uh, where we're contemplating what might an AI be and what might an AI be in a, in a sonic or sound world where the AI is trying to communicate uh, via sort of audio sort of utterances. Um, so... I think it's a sort of it's a mistake to think that artificial intelligence is perhaps intelligent because in fact I don't think it is I think it's just sort of mimicking what we actually do and it only does what we program it to do but it is so complex in its arrangement that it can seem or it can appear that it has some form uh, of autonomy but in some ways if you actually drill right down into it it is actually doing something that might be perceived as being predictable. So in fact, it's the human in the machine, it's the human hand, which we constantly see. Yes, that's right. I think that the way that it's coded, the way that it's developed, uh, you can clearly see from, you know, from from our perspective, our input uh, into 
into these artificial or into these autonomous entities. Um, but for someone who's never seen it before, the, the perception is that it might appear like it's alive and it's doing its own, it's doing its own thing. Jonathan, you've co-created this exhibition with Evelyn and obviously since you first came up with the idea to do such a thing, the world has essentially changed. We're in COVID. Um, at the time of recording this podcast, Melbourne's in lockdown. Hopefully that will change soon. What's been some of the, the, the challenges around putting a show together during lockdown? Definitely been a lot of uh, starts and stops uh, with planning Future You. Uh, I started that discussion with Evelyn uh, early in 20, I think it was 20, 2019, I think. Our plan was to open it in, in June last year. And uh, we spent uh, most of 2019 sort of mapping out the, the artists that we wanted to include. And then by the time COVID hit in early you know March 2020 uh, you know we quickly realized that uh, the exhibition wasn't going to perhaps happen so for example we had one part of the exhibition which was more originally planned to be more like a sort of small thin cinema space where people could uh, watch a sort of montage of, of uh, films around the theme but then we realized with social distancing uh, you know there were aspects of the exhibition that we could no longer do so we had to sort of think about how we could uh, reconfigure evelyn you were you were telling me earlier there are some works in future you that are only there because of the pandemic absolutely um in fact um i guess there if there is a silver lining um it has has been this that um we had um organized all the artists everything was ready to open in a few months we're talking about where we were in january 2020 which feels like it was a hundred years ago now and uh, then lockdown happened and when we were told that look the exhibition hasn't been cancelled it's just been postponed um, and uh, what would the exhibition look like in 2021 i mean there was part of us which hoped that we'd be all out of this but what we wanted to do was actually have a work in there that somehow reflected um, what was going on and what we decided was uh, this wonderful piece called beautiful the world by a collective called uncanny valley and jonathan would you like to talk about uh, this work yeah no this is a this is a Fantastic work. Um, it was originally, uh, so it was developed in 2020, the Eurovision Song Contest was, uh, was, uh, was cancelled that year. Uh, and so um, there was another organisation in the Netherlands that decided to put on the equivalent of Eurovision, um, or the Eurovision Song Contest, but uh, this time it would be online and the artists would submit works that were created uh, using artificial intelligence uh, to produce a part or the entire song. Uh, and so a team in Australia with one of uh, the uh, researchers uh, at uh, RMIT uh, developed a, a song called Beautiful uh, the World. 
uh, which which won the, the contest. So this was uh, the, an inaugural AI Eurovision, which uh, Australia actually won. <laughs> so we thought that look, this was a really uh, it was an excellent ex- example of. Uh, an artwork that had sort of emerged as a result of sort of the COVID pandemic, uh, and we felt that it was such it was an excellent work to to show in in the exhibition. Well, his research aims to reduce the environmental impacts of textiles by investigating the potential of using microorganisms to create biotextiles. We're of course talking about Alexi Freeman, who has works in the exhibition Ev- Evelyn Biotextiles. Well, I'm not the right person to talk about biotextiles. I think Alexi, of course, is. And I do remember, of course. Hi, Alexi. I'm remembering going to your studio when we didn't have... um, Yes, you made it up all those stairs. I made it up all those stairs. In the before times with co-curator Jonathan Duckworth. And we were struck as soon as you opened that door by this very pungent smell. So tell me about biotextiles and the smells. (laughs) Well, I think it was um, Dali who said that the future is going to be hairy, soft and hairy, I believe were his words. But then I think it was Neri Oxman more recently who talked about the future is going to have an interesting smell or words to that effect. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I guess with um, contemporary chemistry methods, we can more or less sort of turn, you know, broccoli into popcorn and popcorn into broccoli as, as someone in the audience suggested during a science week, uh, Q and a session that I heard, but I mean, yes, we can get rid of the smell essentially is what I'm trying to say with chemicals, but I suppose smelling, you know, the fermentation state um, process in its raw state without trying to sort of mask that with the sterility of contemporary society is kind of part of the experience and it's potentially a much more sustainable approach um you know allowing those microorganisms to express their full odiferous glory as opposed to you know trying to absolutely nuke them into non um smelly existence yes smells but i mean was all alive and that was what was wonderful and what was mesmerizing for myself and Jonathan was actually looking at these samples uh, of um, I guess biotextiles that you were making and there was petri dishes um, mm. you were growing things it was alive yes so, it, was. Uh, it was alive they are so, they are so tell me why why biomaterial what's what's you're a fashion designer why this um well you know I guess I turned 40 a couple of years ago and some, uh, some people buy a sports car or, you know, get divorced and marry someone younger. I don't know. My midlife crisis, I think, was deciding that I wanted to be um, radically more sustainable, ecologically relevant in my approach to design. And through a lot of sort of traveling and soul searching and visiting other studios and sort of looking into what design could be, it led me to the hypothesis that maybe if we return to kind of the ancient root bridges of thousands of years ago when we wanted to build a bridge, um, that we could, you know, actually start to repair our relationship with nature and that it was possible to um, apply those principles 
to fashion and textiles. <laughs> which is which is terrific. And I think what is fascinating is that you were telling us, I remember in the studio, how these were just like um, waste products, in fact, often, that you could turn into something else. That was part of the research that you're doing for your master's at RMIT. Yeah, I'm really interested in, um, well, circularity and um, I guess concepts around like bioregionalism. So kind of looking at uh, what resources are around. I guess, um, you know, my studio is in Fitzroy and there are plenty of humans living around there that throw out food waste. There are also plenty of businesses around there that throw out food waste. And these organisms, along with, um, you know, fungi, I guess, are the other sort of major ones. But, you know, microorganisms are essentially like the recyclers of the planet. You know, long before homo sapiens ever stepped foot on this mortal coil, you know, they were kind of turning leaves or, you know, whatever food source was around, um, you know, transforming it into a different substance. And, yeah, and they've been doing that potentially for billions of years that we know of. Um, yeah, so I guess the idea of turning stuff that we don't want, like food waste, into stuff that we do want, like textiles seem to be, uh, yeah, a hypothesis worth interrogating through my research. And the actual samples, I mean, uh, of some of these um, materials that you're making, they're all quite different, aren't they? I mean, they're in, in a sense that there's a variation of, it seems, perhaps texture and shade. And, and is that because of the different food waste? Is that is that? Well, I mean, I guess, you know, if you were a, a real scientist, because I am not a real scientist, I'm a designer who is kind of um, moonlighting in the field of science. But, I mean, yeah, scientists don't like to sort of anthropomorphise uh, microorganisms, but, but I shall, and I can, because I'm a designer. <laughs> but essentially, I mean, I think like us, you know, having worked with them the last couple of years, I feel as though, you know, if... If I sit on the couch and eat a lot of processed food and drink a lot of beer and watch a lot of Netflix, that's going to sort of result in me having a certain morphology, if you like, if you will. You know, it might affect the curvature of my spine. It might affect, you know, the shit, my gait when I walk, you know, it, it would affect all sorts of things. And I think the microorganisms are not entirely different in my anecdotal observations, depending on what you feed them, how old they are, the temperature. Um, their pH, you know, I mean, all things that we're also deeply affected by as far as I can observe. Um, yeah. So essentially, you know, the environment that, you know, like all the DNA is the same. They're like, they're um, reproducing exponentially. But yeah, depending on what you feed them and how long they live for in their cultivation environment, they do you do get radically different um, results. Alexi, do you imagine that um, this research that you're doing can be, um, I don't know, maybe commercialised or actually used by yourself to make, you know, garments? Would is is yeah. this what you yeah hope? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, when I began, it really seemed like the. Um, this method of using microorganisms to produce cellulose had only been explored in a speculative sense. But 
as I've gotten deeper into the research, there's actually one company who happens to be based in Australia. They have hooked up with one of the world's biggest textile companies who's based in India. I think they've been bought by them and they are looking at ways to turn... Um, so there's a Filipino dessert called Nata de Coco and I believe they're working with waste from the coconut liquid food industry and they're... Um, yeah, they're looking at ways to scale bacterial cellulose into a textile fibre for the industry. So, yeah, I guess what started as me thinking that that might be my sort of contribution is has now sort of transformed into me sort of wanting to contribute in a broader sense to this emerging field of fire design. And um, when I say you're a fashion designer, you're a fashion uh, and textile designer who's always thought about what happens to material and been interested in sustainability, haven't you? Um, you know, opting out of that fast fashion cycle as a designer. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I studied um, fine art back in the back late last century. And yeah, so I never sort of had a design, like a formal sort of design training, you know, or sustainability design training but I think it was something that just sort of came innately to me like I guess my peers were kind of all moving offshore to produce bigger numbers um you know at a cheaper price point and that it just never really appealed to me I've always um been drawn to a much more sort of bespoke practice which I guess has inadvertently aligned me with the slow fashion movement um, so I think, yeah, in many respects, the last couple of decades of my practice has been sort of intuitively, innately sustainable. But yeah, it did occur to me a couple of years ago, you know, increasingly, I guess the more I understood and observed of the industry and the prevalent practices, the more I realised that, um, yeah, there's radically different approaches that could be adopted and really, you know, are essential, I guess, for the industry moving forward. And, uh, you know, that's an interesting um, aspect of Future You, I think, is that we're not only having screen-based work, which is around your work, um, which is made of, you know, um, waste. <laughs> um, it pervades the, 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 the very lovely smell now, pervades the, the gallery space, which is wonderful. And it does give a sense of um, where we're going with the future and a, a kind of a conscious need to actually think about what we're doing to the planet. I think it's up to all of us to shift the way where, you know, the way we're designing, the way we're consuming, the way we're disposing of our design products. Um, and yeah, it's really wonderful to be part of a, you know, curation of artists and designers and thinkers who are, you know, speculating about what that future may look and I guess smell like. Thank you very much, Alexi. Evelyn, humans are setting their sights to return to the moon and also do a mission to Mars. It's all part of the future and perhaps part of future human colonies. But what happens when we die on Mars? You have picked quite an, an interesting artwork to include in the exhibition. Indeed. This is uh, by Pia Interlandi. And her death shroud for Mars really is quite confronting and beautiful at the same time because it asks us what do we do when our bodies will not decay on another planet, when there is perhaps none of the, the rituals, the millennium of rituals 
that uh, we can uh, take with us to another planet to actually set us aside when we die? What happens to us? Um, yeah, do we just sort of, our bodies just lie there on, say, Mars? Um, where's the ritual and the dignity? So, and how do we, you know, pack for that <laughs> on a space flight? You know, this is something we don't actually see in science fiction films. So I was fascinated by the speculation around this piece. And to tell us more about it, let's talk to Dr. Pia Interlandi. A lot of my work is earthbound. And I think that um, in starting this prospect of going, oh, what's it going to be like to die on Mars? There's, there's a lot of questions that, um, that play out over, is this real or not? And a lot of my, my work is speculative, um, but speculative in that, oh, yes, this is definitely happening. And my collaborator, Jaden Hastings, um, she's very keen to go into space. I, I'm not. <laughs> I'm, I'm earthbound. But earthbound means that um, we have human rituals that we will take with us when we do start going to the red planet. Um, Pia, what I found really fascinating um, about your proposal for the exhibition was thinking about science fiction films. And that's my thing. I love speculative fiction, science fiction. What we don't actually see, apart from people being blown into smithereens um, or dying like in the film The Martian by themselves, mm. there is nothing about what happens necessarily um, about a death, a natural or otherwise death on a planet that, that has rituals about it. You know, people are usually consumed by an alien or something like that, or pushed pushed out the space lock. Absolutely, that's, that yeah, too. that's yes. that's the one. That's the other one I think of. Or it's it is that sudden traumatic. Um, I was get, I was going to say that I have no. I'm not rushing to go into space anytime soon because I watched Event Horizon as a child, <laughs> and I I know the the science fiction of space and it feels very scary. So that not all deaths are violent or traumatic um, and some are timely and they're the deaths that I tend to try to design for the most, um, you know, an idealised version of what it is like to die in a timely and prepared manner. But, yeah, there, there's not. There, there are the, I guess the space burials or the interplanetary burials or death practices tend to happen and then they go and there's no follow-up there's no what is it like to integrate a cemetery of dead people into the environment in which we would be colonizing and um in this sort of you know obviously talking about colonization um is a part of the the learning we're all doing at RMIT and in Australia at the moment and and looking at Indigenous practice and becoming land, becoming part of the environment. And maybe I take that more literally than most people, that what will my body go on to become? Because I was actually thinking that the one living sort of piece in the exhibition is related to your work. <laughs> yeah, and that was... That was I should that say was two, two, because there's the... I'm not sure if they're living, but they're the... the the silkworms, the cocoons. Silkworms, the cocoons and yes, the, they, the plant, the mul is it a mulberry plant? It is, it's a dwarf mulberry. Um, and 
all of those things sort of were secondary in the planning of all what's it like to die on Mars in that when I do my research, when I do um, kind of when I'm when I'm doing research rather than sort of private practice with people who've died, the research is very much I use a life cycle thinking methodology and I start with death. I start with death as being the raw material that the, the human body at that point we have to do something about and we will have to do something about the dead on Mars and going, well, there's a heap of different contexts that, you know, it's not soil, it's not earth, it's not dirt, it's something else, it's, it's regolith and it's completely aseptic. So by putting a body that may be dead into an aseptic environment, the, the, the body isn't dead, it's full of microbes that are alive and are we, is, are, are we introducing things into the environment of Mars that we, we don't yet know what the consequences of that could be. So in part of my thinking about, you know, death on Mars, it's, it's, it's quite sort of scientific from a, a fashion designer, <laughs> um, but that's I use science, I use material studies. I talk about cellulose and proteins and synthetic fibers. And so in saying, okay, well, what do we do with the dead? I ask, and then what happens? And then what happens? And then what happens? And then what happens? And then how do you get back to the start of a life cycle? So the plan that I've been working on is, yes, we might take a burial garment or something to ritualize our disposal of people who die on Mars that there isn't there isn't a human culture um, that doesn't practice dressing the dead, whether that is um, through adornment, um, through literal garments, through wrapping in cloth, through a burial practice and the rituals that go around it. All of those things are what I consider as part of the dressing. So to ritualize the disposal of the dead human body is something that is uniquely human and is something we'll take with us. Um, so the first, you know, the plan was inside the pillowcases of all of our first, uh, Mars bound earthlings will be their burial garment, which is made of silk. And so it's, it's, it's a silk cocoon. It's, it does get used by the way, as wadding in some bedding so none of these materials are serving a purpose that they're not also already utilized amongst so the pillow is the upon my death if not to earth then to soil then to dirt that it's unlikely any one will be returning to earth i think that that's part of the contract that's been signed that if you're agreeing to be one of the first i don't know, think they are Martians, but on Mars. But anyway, their the lingo is kind of fascinating itself and I'm getting into, yes, <laughs> some other territory. But when someone dies, the crew, which are their only physical community and will have to take on the role of friends and family. There, ha there, there is a plan for what happens when you die because the expectation is that if you're signing up to do that mission, it's understood that, it's very unlikely you'll ever be coming back. Um, so, yeah, you'll get wrapped in a silk cocoon or a silk lap, a silk sheet, um, which 
is symbolic of transformation, but it's also a protein fiber like our bodies. So burying someone, yeah, we've got a whole lot of nutrients that they're not going to get back anyway. And so looking at all the ways of disposing the dead, um, alkaline hydrolysis has been something I've done a lot of research in, which is aquamation or... Um, Resumation, the, the terminology around what it means to dissolve a human body um, is, is also still being refined. That body will be dissolved. There will be a liquid at the other end, and that liquid has a whole lot of peptides and, and proteins that is a, quite a good fertilizer. That fertilizer we've proposed gets used to water a series of plants and what grows out of those plants and what that can get utilized for is still being debated but from my perspective i went well mulberry because you can feed mulberry to silkworms and silkworms are they do quite a few studies on the the nutritional benefit um, of the the larvae but the cocoon gets teased out and strength you know stretched out back into filaments and then it can be used that that's the next death garment we're not going to be making fabric they're not shipping up looms <laughs> and and weaving machines to be to be manufacturing textiles for for clothing and garments at this point but having a plan for where those raw materials that can become another set of of burial garments is coming from is is something that I'm sort of thinking about in terms of sustainability. It is really a cycle, isn't it? I mean, we're it, part of a cycle. It is, and it's it's complete. It cycles on and on and on and on, and that's where I kind of do have to pull back every now and then to go. All right, well, what is it? It's a pillowcase, and then we've got. The, the thing that is about the dressing and ritualizing of the dead, which is the death mask. And then you have something that represents that alkaline or um, liquefying of a body. And, and I, we went through, is it a clear liquid going? Well, no, actually, it's a coffee colored liquid that comes out. So that's represented in the exhibition. Um, and then the, the, the mulberry tree is the the one bit of technically, as you've said, living thing in the exhibition, and uh, <laughs> that was a, a mission to find a, a mulberry tree in the middle of um, winter that hadn't lost its leaves. I teach in in fashion and textiles, and one of the classes I teach is on biomaterials, um, and I've done residencies over at Symbiotica, um, which is sort of an art um, science lab. But Yonat uh, uh, and Oren, who are the artists behind tissue, TCNA, the Tissue Culture and Arts, they had a living material that was over at MoMA that things started going wrong and the curator had to switch it off. And oh, unintentionally, exactly unintentionally, it brought about a whole conversation related to euthanizing um, An these mm. yeah, work that is alive and I mean that was that was uh, over a decade ago I think now but in that space the conversation about artwork that is alive and the responsibility that we have for as artists bringing things into being that we have a responsibility for planning 
the the bringing into being and the going out of being as well which i think is when you start going into the all sustainable practice that as designers and artists that um it's no longer just okay well there it's off to the consumer and it's up to them now it's that you have to actually plan the whole life cycle of responsible use and disposal and that's i've been talking about disposing of human beings for really uh, most of my most of my practice now so um that we are talking about composting things um and not just you know food scraps we're talking about composting garments and cotton t-shirts and and human bodies um which i think is yeah yeah, so so important and that's why we're so keen to have your work in the exhibition you think about what's happened in the last few weeks with um, Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos sort of flying up into space, you yep. know, as tourism. And, mm. you know, okay, what's the next step and what's the next step? But as you said, we, we're going to have to actually confront what happens when we actually can't come back, when we die, and, you know, being laid to rest. And that's that's the thing that at the moment we're very used to coffins, as being part of a, a Western context for dying, that the coffin is more often than not seen as the symbol of, of death, mm-hmm. that particularly with, with clients I speak to, it's that selection of coffin. Um, here's the brochure of the coffins. Which one are you choosing? What people don't seem to realise is that a coffin has two trees that go into making it usually. And so... In the, in the environmental kind of development of uh, contemporary death practice, it's very much, I'd like to be returned to the earth and have a tree planted on me. And I'm, so, I'm usually cynical enough to say, and what about the other tree that's required for the coffin? But um, the, the thinking of what comes next, the thinking of a life that is beyond our own, future you is... Um, for me, at least, is the afterlife, your physical afterlife. And for some, that's going to be off planet. Future You is showing at the RMIT Gallery until the 23rd of October. For the latest information, head to rmitgallery.com.